Assalamu alaikum. Greetings of peace. Welcome to this episode of the Renovatio podcast. My name is Safir Ahmed and I'm an editor at Renovatio, the Journal of Zaytuna College. And I'm delighted to introduce this thought-provoking exchange between David Bentley Hart, uh, a prominent Orthodox Christian writer and theologian, and John Ardali, a Muslim philosopher and scholar of Islam. This particular conversation was recorded some time ago and we are excited to bring it to your attention now. The topics they discuss are timeless. Mostly they talk about the state of modern philosophy and whether one can be hopeful about its future. And they discuss the fragmentation of science, philosophy and art, none of which have much to do with religion or morality anymore. They also explore whether science is as rational as many of us may believe it to be. We think you'll find the conversation stimulating and we hope it encourages you to find and read their work on our website at renovatio.zaytuna.edu where they write about these topics and other topics as well. Let me give you a brief introduction of each scholar. David Bentley Hart is an Orthodox Christian philosophical theologian and a cultural commentator. His research focuses on the philosophy of mind, the metaphysics of the soul, Asian literature, ontology, and classical and continental philosophy. He's written several books. The most recent one is titled, That All Shall Be Saved, Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation. Our other guest is John Ardali, an associate professor of religious studies at College of the Holy Cross in Massachusetts. He specializes in his Quranic studies, interfaith dialogue, and philosophy. Dr. Dali served as an editor of the study Quran, and he is a regular contributor to Renovatio, and also served on our board of advisors. Somewhat relevant to this conversation with a Christian theologian that he is having is the fact that Jan Dali was among the 138 Muslim signatories some years ago of the letter titled, quote, A Common Word Between Us and You, unquote which was an appeal to Christian world leaders for peace and cooperation between Christians and Muslims. Without further ado, let's listen to John Ardali and David Bentley Hart talking about philosophy without God. Well, David, it's, um, it's an honor to be able to speak with you. Um, uh, we met many years ago under the auspices of Rowan Williams at the Building Bridges meeting. And I've been following your writings uh, ever since then um, uh, and have enjoyed them very much. And I'm really looking forward to what we can talk about today. Kind of you to say. Uh, I've uh, just been reading your critical edition of the Quran in English, by the way, and very impressive production, I have to say. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, I wanted to jump right in since... Um, you know, there's so much that we could cover. You've, your writing has covers so many, so much of modern intellectual life and cultural life. And I thought I'd begin on the subject of modern philosophy. Uh, you are an uh, Eastern Orthodox theologian and thinker, and but you also have an extremely uh, broad and I would I, I think deep command of modern philosophy, but. I was wondering if you could comment on an impression or, or let's say kind of a, a takeaway that I've had about modern philosophy, which is, I mean, as a Muslim thinker, as someone whose intellectual formation has come out of Islamic 
philosophy, Islamic mysticism, Islamic theology. Yeah. When I study modern philosophy, uh, it has a few features which I find to be extremely uh, challenging, problematic, uh, seductive. Uh, there's a certain aspect in it, uh, which it, there's a the, the metaphor that comes to mind is arsonist and firefighter, and uh-huh. so you have a lot of instances where modern philosophy creates a problem, and then we celebrate it for solving it, and also the a somewhat related phenomenon of of the great modern philosophers. I'm thinking from Descartes onwards, who there's this tendency to see oneself as having seen something that no one has seen before, right? None before yeah. me have realized such and such. And then also a sort of, a kind of an intolerance for the idea that their views should be open to any kind of serious revision. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, of when Kant uh, severely chastised Fichte for some, you know, for suggesting that the, that the, that the critical philosophy should be revised or changed or it needed yeah. some kind of improvement. Hegel thought that, you know, in a sense, history had ended with him in his brain. Uh, you know, you had Heidegger looking on the entire tradition and saying that they got it all wrong about being and then having to revise himself later on and Wittgenstein thinking he had solved all of philosophy only to come back to it later and then revising himself. I mean, there seems to be these ways in which philo- modern philosophy, it, it, it makes promises it, it seems as though it's holding out the hope for something, and it doesn't pay off. I was wondering if, like, from your perspective, as someone who really knows modern philosophy well, if you had thoughts on that. Well, yeah, quite a few. I mean, you, you've uh, you, you you've raised so many issues that uh, I, you know, you can switch off your microphone now. I'll just I'll just talk for an hour. Right? <laughs> no, um, it's, well, it's true also. I mean, you, you're you're speaking of the continental tradition. I mean, in the in a sense, it's true also of analytic philosophy, and that it also the Anglophone tradition of the 20th century uh, made lots of promises regarding the, the possibility of reducing all thought to its logical simples and being able ultimately to reduce every analytic proposition every uh, sorry every synthetic proposition to an analytic proposition and in the sense that you know we could purify our language to the point where we wouldn't be uh, we wouldn't be making assertions without content and it turns out that's not true either that that, that what we that the, the process of analysis itself is always uh, corrupted so to speak polluted or or I would say, fertilized by, but, you know, it depends on your view of things, by ambiguities, by cultural inheritances, by, by uh, conceptual associations with words. So it, it's, it's true of all these traditions. But I do think it is one, it's interesting you, you mentioned the, um, you know, the striving in the continental tradition, especially to arrive at a kind of finality. Uh, because as you know, uh, it, being well-versed in classical Islamic philosophy and classical Christian philosophy have the same roots, that uh, it was, it was uh, much more the case that, that the, the philosopher's ideal in the ancient and medieval world was, to go, was uh, not to arrive at finality, but, but to find the origin, you know, to constantly try to go back to the earliest, uh, and it was assumed for that reason, the purest expression of, of philosophical wisdom, and so the authority of the past, not not the uh, not the novelty of the present, was the chief authority. So that, you, you know you have a 
a, a curious change in ethos with the birth of modern philosophy. But it is true uh, that that so much of of the tradition of modern thought has been the attempt to achieve a kind of transcendental belatedness. You know, you come last of all at the end of the story. You can sum it all up. And Hegel and Heidegger are the two most sort of magisterial versions of this this impulse. But it's there all the time. I mean, Descartes is trying to reestablish thought, but on a basis that's so firm and clear and exact that it that that it uh, you know it, it allows for variation, but not for uh, for revision. Uh, and again, I'm, again I'm as you say, you've... does oh, sorry, it go. does it deliver what it offers? And and no, again, you find that that Heidegger could never thoroughly purge the language of being of the metaphysical inheritance. He always had to struggle against it, and in doing so, it turns out that he was subverting his own discourse. It's it's a it's a common story. Anyway, you were about to say. Yeah, I was. Uh, uh, to me, I mean, I'm struck by the moral question of it. I mean, I'm thinking, uh, you know, uh, just one can pick any frame, but I'm I'm thinking of it. Uh, think of a an undergraduate who's that's going to college and he's heard of this thing called philosophy, and he 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 believes that he or she believes that it's going to give them something. Right. And this notion of is it right? I mean, is there is there a moral problem to to present, uh, whether you call it philosophy or theory, something that is, as it were, going to offer everything that a, a thinker or someone who's striving after some kind of wisdom or understanding or interpretation of the world. I don't think it's very clear before going into it that the that it doesn't pay off. In other words, that it's it's always changing every ten or fifteen years, even within the analytic tradition, within the continental tradition. Yeah. That it's it, it's not going to work out for them, and I and I feel as though religion and theology is a bit more honest about its promises. It's a bit more clear about what you can seek to get from it, um, and it doesn't present. I, I, I'm thinking of in terms of you might say the responsibility of intellectuals for those who are depending upon them to interpret the world. It seems to me there's a kind of a there's a sort of mystification and dishonesty running through the teaching of modern philosophy in the world. Which has over the years, it's begun to bother me. Am I wrong to be bothered by that? Well, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it depends on what teachers you're talking about, I suppose. I think um, more and more, though, uh, there have been healthy tendencies, especially in continental thought, uh, in recent years, to recognize that uh, that that there are uh, hermeneutical reasons. Not to offer assurances that that that, that can't all ultimately be backed up. Let me, let me put it this way: There's been a sort of religious turn in continental thought because the, one of the big differences between continental and anglophone philosophy in the 20th century was that the anglophone tradition sort of wants to start uh, from the most basic premises to the point where it erases the history of thought and with it the history of language and where these concepts come right. from. It, it, it's, it's an ahistorical vacuum that's the ideal working space for Anglophone thought in the, in the 20th century. Right. And the old joke is uh, analytic philosophers start as if uh, no one has ever read anything, whereas 
uh, continental thought starts from the, from the premise that everyone has read everything. But the latter, right. yeah. the latter makes you responsible to the past. More and more, you see that uh, serious serious thinkers uh, in the European tradition are aware of the fact that they belong to a hermeneutical tradition. That concepts are not static and fixed propositional symbol, uh, symbols that can be reduced to uh, a kind of univocal logical notation. And so more and more thinkers like Agamben and Badiou, for instance, are now interested in what, what, what happened in the history of Christianity? How did it how did it change the destiny of European thought? You know, even and 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 this has opened up what I think are new avenues of dialogue with Islam in Europe and and other traditions. So I'm not I'm not uh, as for the future of philosophy. I'm not I'm not as pessimistic as as you 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 sound. <laughs> I don't know if you are. As for how it's taught, I'm glad you as how, how it's taught yeah. in universities, colleges there. If if you have philosophers uh, trying to present themselves as as having all the answers, then obviously that's a problem. But I think there's 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 a growing consciousness, a, a greater less less interest in creating the the uh, ultimate uh, transcendentally belated system, and more interested in in understanding the Western tradition of thought and the Eastern traditions of thought as hermeneutical. Uh, traditions that come from the past that have to be yeah. historically reconstructed, philologically, and thought with and through, without attempting the the kind of total perspective that that that, that was the ideal of Hegel and then of Heidegger. Um, I suppose that's true, but I think there's also it. It seems to me a dark side to that hermeneutical approach, which is that it often seems to me to go along with a a kind of uh, either skepticism or relativism or a, a kind of a presupposition that in a sense, you know, to use Heidegger's phrase, you know, we don't speak language, language speaks us, right. uh, or that, you know, we're as it were determined by our culture and that the, that the enterprise of, of, of looking at the history of thought, of looking at the history of our concepts, uh, will never lead us outside of them. In other words, we, we will never really be able to get to some vantage point or to get to some sort of state of mind or uh, call it objectivity, call it rationality, right. some, I mean, I, some I, I, firm handhold. It, it, it seems to always slip out from under, uh, under. I mean, one can appreciate the history of Christian thought, for example, as a, as a modern philosopher. But if the basic presupposition is that is that relativistic one, is, is where we can't ever overcome our our conditions are that, that that we're always conditioned and cultured and formed by these various extrinsic factors that to me seems to be just as serious a problem as the false hope of some kind of yeah. final systematic treatment of the world oh yeah no i mean you you you're never going to be able to uh uh as long as philosophy is understood as an autonomous discipline uh it, it's going to chart its own course right uh, all, all I'm saying is that uh, we now have uh, arrived at a point where there's a kind of disenchantment with the total philosophical narrative uh, as constructed imminently within the power of, of human reason to understand the, the whole uh, history of thought as le leading inevitably to one particular terminus. And in that, 
you now, as a result of that, uh, suddenly there isn't the kind of condescending approach to antiquity that there once was. Perhaps the language of mm-hmm. transcendence that you find in Plotinus uh, is a fully rational and compelling and internally consistent way of say, you know. But you're right. I mean, at the same time, the, the hermeneutical tendency can also become a historicizing tendency that's every bit as as totalizing every bit as comprehensive as any other. I mean, you, you could say that your your total narrative of no total narratives just becomes another total narrative. And, and I, I grant that fully. Still, I prefer the situation we're in now to one in which, uh, you, you know, there were generations of uh, disciples of Hegel who were trying to understand Hegel rather than than understanding Hegel within a tradition of language and discourse and thought that was trying to understand reality. Right, right, right. Um, You mentioned the idea of philosophy as an autonomous discipline. That's interesting to me because I think one of the, I think, distinguishing features of modern intellectual life as it concerns, let's say, the biggest questions, ultimate questions, is that there is a kind of a I would say, a, a, not unanimous, but a, a very overwhelming tendency to conceive of philosophy and science and art as being not just different, but as being in their essential natures necessarily having no overlap with each other at yeah, all. So we have this domain of science, which, which, is, which, is, which is science tells us what the world is. Philosophy is, as it were, a, a kind of a discourse on what's rational or what's possible on concepts, and art is essentially about the self, about values, and, and so forth and so on. And what's interesting is not that we have these three areas, because it's, in a sense it's perennial, but there is a kind of a, an, an insistence that these are three different groups of people, mm-hmm. these are also three completely separate methods or approaches towards the world, and that you might say the contents of these areas are also separate. I mean, it's a kind of yeah. a strict demarcation and, between these three areas. And, and you've left yeah. out one other sphere that at one time would have been uh, integrated with all three in a, in a difference, and which is revelation. Um, right. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the modern perspective is that these are hermetically sealed areas of concern and expertise. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the especially poisonous idea, expertise that uh, uh, have their, not only their own methods, their, their own internal rationales, but, but their own contents, uh, and that the, and the contents of those disciplines don't overlap. And that's very much um, a development that comes about in the West, or at least in Western European thought, after the 13th or early 14th century and begins to take shape. Uh, there was a time, for instance, when uh, when you know, Aquinas could make the distinction between uh, natural philosophy and uh, revealed truth, meaning rather meaning only that that there there are things uh, specific to each, but that it, for the most part they're concerned with the same open area of reality, but they approach it under in very different modalities. Therefore, you know the the sciences. Uh, or natural philosophy, as it would have been in his time, uh, can speak about God, but they speak about God as an originating principle, as the prime mover. Uh, they don't speak of God uh, in 
terms of, say, well, Trinitarian theology for Christians, but, but, but in theological terms. But he wasn't suggesting that, that these were two uh, uh, absolutely discrete spheres of inquiry. It's rather these are different modalities of, of approach to the truth. And the same would be true of the arts, uh, morality, political science. The funny thing is, as uh, mm-hmm. as as this distinction between modalities became a division between territories, it reduced everything, including revelation. Uh, revelation for uh, I would say early modern Christian thought ceases to be the deepening of the natural impulses of the rational spirit in its in its search for God. Uh, or the fulfillment of those natural desires with a supernatural light, or however it would have been conceived. More and more it becomes revelation as an absolute superpositum, something that simply supplements natural knowledge, that natural knowledge doesn't point towards it, nor does it in any way uh, really offer anything uh, regarding natural knowledge that natural knowledge isn't capable of achieving in itself. Rather, it's just another body of information laid atop the other bodies of information that we possess. And in that very way, revelation comes to lose uh, its uh, rational content, so to speak. It becomes simply you know, inexplicable truths delivered without any, any uh, sense of how they're integrated with or how they fulfill or how they're foreshadowed in all the other activities of the human spirit. And uh, so the early modern crisis is, uh, comes to be understood as a, 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 for some, comes to be understood uh, as a, a struggle between rationalism and fideism. Uh, very altogether right. yes. modern modern categories. It would have been uh, uh, simply uh, inconceivable in a pre-modern context. But it seems to me that this is this kind of this trifurcation uh, of these three areas is 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 there's something different about the first three. And you 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 mentioned revelation. I think you could I think you could even say theology. Uh, and also, uh, let's say, po- because there's a sense in which not only are science and art and philosophy separate from each other, but there's also an insistence within each of those areas that they're not religion, right? right. Like yeah. in, in the modern context, science is not religion. Philosophy is not theology. Right. Art is not about moralism or morality, and it can, at least considered from the point of view of, of religion. So there's a way in which it seems to me that the 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 modern culture of, of ultimate questions or of or of exploring the ultimate it sort of nece- has this kind of necess- necessary um, it 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 holds together by keeping these things apart right because in a sense you, it, it it's really not coherent and so the only way to hold the whole project together is by keeping these things separate so that the inconsistencies don't become too apparent right. all and, the time and, and, and that li- the and that the other way of looking at it is is in a sense the, the the traditional religious way, which is not to reduce religion to revelation or just to just to faith or just to some kind of right. mere gesture of the will, but to include the intellectual, to include the natural, right. to include the artistic. Yeah, and in in, in doing so, to necessarily to uh, include each of them in each of the uh, each of the others, in a sense, uh, you know, mm-hmm. offering offering, if not. Uh, 
answers within the methods of the discrete pursuits, the discrete intellectual pursuits, nonetheless, an ultimate context, uh, you know, a rational spiritual context in which, which the unfolding of knowledge uh, and of understanding mm-hmm. uh, has an actual rationale as such. Uh, sorry, that was a rather obscure way of putting it. Well, let me, let me I mean, look at the, I mean, the sciences, of course, in a sense, are the paradigmatic case for modern thought because the development in early modernity of uh, a mechanistic uh, method of induction for understanding natural processes in one sense is a genuine advance, right? I think we can agree that uh, it's helpful at times to be able to prescind certain uh, considerations of a natural phenomenon and just concentrate on what's going on at the level of discrete physical causes because that way you can say, you know, find therapies for cancers. Sure. Uh, and, and, but I mean, what this meant at first was, was simply that we will prescind our, and, and I think we all know now, I think every good philosopher of science knows that pure induction is a sort of fantasy. No one can achieve it perfectly. You can't reason totally from the particular. You're always working within a set of questions about the, you know, teleology in some sense. Right. And that there's no way to formalize induction. It, it, it's, right. it, it, there's no algorithm for it. Right. It, 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 it's, it's an ideal, but it's an ideal that it, it can't be realized and shouldn't be realized because it, it would be an impossible idea of trying to reconstruct reality from the particular in everything constantly forever. Uh, you have to have a context of intelligibility that you presume within which then you undertake induction. But when this method becomes a metaphysics, uh, you have a problem, right? Because, of course, w- what has been removed from our picture of nature at the level of method is everything that, that has to do uh, with mind, you know, everything that has to do with the phenomenal, everything that has to do with purpose, structure, form. Uh, and then if you make it a matter not of, of method but of metaphysics that this is actually – the real as such, then you have to be able to reconstruct all those other things as epiphenomena of something more original. Say, if you allow religion now to intrude on the sciences, uh, you have forfeited your uh, the very the, the you know the most basic impulse of modern science, which is to approach reality in as rigorously non-religious a way as possible. And uh, you know, I think, and then yeah. that, of course, becomes the model for all serious rational investigation. You know, everything aspires. Uh, why why the arts should be understood in this way makes no sense at all. Obviously, because it's very hard to isolate art from the, uh, its its uh, function within religious and cultural life. And when you do so, you, you do so rather violently. I mean, you you know, uh, you when you tear an image of the crucifixion out of its religious con- context and try to understand it purely as part of the history of perspective or certain motifs or certain techniques or certain aesthetics, uh, you're doing something violently artificial. It's the intelligibility of the thing that you're, you're studying. But uh, of course, the sciences are for us now the model of all responsible discourse uh, and the sciences themselves understood as pursuing the impossible ideal of a pure induction. 
I also think that there's something, um, there's a kind of an irony at the heart of, of the modern scientific project, which is, um, there's, I, I suppose it's just an assumption that very few question, which is the notion that materialism is completely intelligible. Like yeah. we can make sense. There's this thing called nature. There's this thing called matter, or yeah. there's this thing called the physical. And what we mean by that usually is that kind of common sense notion that Descartes and Galileo had in mind of just this kind of you know waxy, featureless stuff that you could shape and and or at least conceive of as something that an artisan could right. could make. But that that simply isn't the case, and no no one has believed that that's what matter is or what the physical is. And what we lack is not so much a, a an account of what supernatural is or what let's say uh, the immaterial is. We in the first place we don't have a very good concept of what material means. I mean, oh, yeah. scientifically we don't know what material means, and so it's it's sort of funny how the onus is frequently placed on the on the on the on the side of those who are trying to counter materialism, yeah. when in point of fact, we, we don't even have the notion of matter in the first place in a rigorous sense. Not, I mean, the rigorous idea of matter as that mechanical stuff as posited by Descartes was, was quickly abandoned. I mean, Newton got rid of that just, I mean, the, the theory of gravity and everything that's followed in physics since then has complete, ob, completely obliterated this picture. And yet, as common sense, we hold on to it and we think yeah. that that's really how it is. Well, it's Which curious. is very strange to me. It's very curious. I mean, if you look at um, some of the most uh, strident uh, naturalists or physicalists or uh, materialists, you know, choose your, your, your term depending on what, where they want to put the emphasis, someone like Daniel Dennett um, still, curiously enough, for all of his knowledge of molecular biology and evolutionary biology, which he's better at, um, you know, and and certainly his awareness of uh, the advances in physics of the twentieth century and, and and quantum physics, nonetheless, uh, metaphysically is committed to a seventeenth century mechanistic model of reality. Everything is ideally reducible to physical description, which would mean that uh, in the case of consciousness, for instance, which is what he writes about a lot, somehow uh, consciousness has all the features that a mechanical picture of reality uh, would seem to militate against, such as it's purposive, therefore it's, uh, it's intentional, therefore it's teleological. So that has to be reduced, that has to be deconstructed and reduced to a set of uh, physical causes that generate the illusion of purposiveness and of teleology and of intentionality. And those have to be then reduced to biochemical causes. And those can be reduced to causes at, at the molecular level, which can then be reduced to causes at the, at the level of atomic and subatomic physics. Well, if you think about that, that really is a rather ridiculous picture of reality, isn't it? I mean, it, it, you would think that that would be the most fabulous and counterintuitive and almost logically impossible picture of how we should think about about reality. The notion that your, your thoughts about uh, the music you're listening to at this moment are reducible to a set of impersonal uh, physical causes at the subatomic level. And yet, that well, my, is our model yeah. of the rational. Uh, we don't yeah. have a picture of causality that makes sense once we have reduced causality merely to the transfer of energy between bodies in motion, especially when we then discover that even locality, um, 
separability, things that we would assume to be necessary for mechanistic philosophy are all subverted at the quantum level. And all reality, as we know it, is supposedly built upon that quantum foundation. So it is curious that uh, yep. that we find that- ourselves in the position of having to defend the reality of the phenomenal, which is something to which we all can attest and in which we can refer intelligibly among ourselves, uh, we have to, you know, the sense that this is real, while uh, a sort of fabulous story, a mathematization based on a theory of causality that can't even be enunciated, has become the model of the rational. Yeah, I you know you have in your by the way I recommend to anyone who's listening to read your reviews of Daniel Dennett. This is some some of my favorite reading. Um, it's uh, it's both informative and also uh, very stylish um, in its presentation. But I, but I did I think this relates somewhat to the separation between philosophy and science that's happened now. That I think there's a, there's a, also another kind of a strange assumption uh which doesn't hold up to much scrutiny that science is about rationality that is to say the scientist is in, interested in that which is logical and rational right. whereas it seems to me that science is completely open to anything that i guess other cultures would call magical uh which doesn't make sense which we can't not not only can we not uh uh let's say fully experience but we can't even imagine experiencing right. things like wave particle duality the multiverse uh, any number of things which the scientist assures us is real but which we can't even imagine as being true but nevertheless the reason why we accept it as being true is because it works or right. we can predict something or, or something <laughs> something of that kind and the notion of a of it of it having to make sense rationally in a strict sense, is actually not a criterion of modern science. I mean, at least not anymore. I mean, no, someone no, like sure. Descartes and Newton, they really understood the ramifications of what they were doing. I mean, Newton was rightly troubled by his discovery that there was no mechanical cause for gravity that he could... I mean, he, right. he, he felt he had to grapple with that. And, um, and he didn't, he didn't that, succeed. And it remains the case that we have absolutely no idea what the cause of, of the gravitation is. That's the, that's the curious thing. Uh, to this day, it remains a black box uh, because, uh, it, and I suspect the reason is precisely because we insist on wanting to think about it mechanically, even though it, uh, in a sense, is is the first uh, epochal subversion of the mechanical picture. You know, but I think scientists themselves are one of the worst. They're, they're, in a sense, the victims, from a certain point of view, of this of this strict demarcation or let's say wall between philosophy and science because they can be you know although, when you run across scientists they 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 they're not really thinking through i mean what like in when when you read uh Dawkins or uh some of these other uh science writers popular science writers and you see some of the really basic philosophical mistakes i mean kind of philosophy 101 yeah. logical fallacies oh, yeah. that are well, being made you're kind of astonished let me let me uh, how it's possible. Say, say a word in defense. This isn't true of all scientists. I, I think, of um, course not. Obviously, yeah, of course. Uh, with Dawkins, I mean, first of all, let, let's let's put him in perspective. He was sort of a third tier zoologist who wrote a book, a popular book on molecular biology that that advanced a theory that was already more or less. Uh, uh, an exploded theory at the time the book appeared, but it was it seemed. Mm-hmm. 
you know, at a popular level to be explanatory. Everything is reducible to genetic imperatives. Now, when you look at it as a philosopher, you don't even have to be a scientist. When you just look at the number of illogical assumptions made in the course of that, it's, you know, the book sort of defeats itself. But there are other, I think, philosophers, especially in uh, physics, those, uh, uh, but but also many in who are now working in systems biology and in mm-hmm. uh, other other new areas, who realize the insufficiency of of uh, the, sort of the the rationalist, reductivist, or the eliminativist tr- positions. They understand that that right. they need a richer causal ex- uh, language because. Uh, now, of course, I, 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 one of the odd things about the way we think about causal language from, say, the, the Aristotelian causal language is we've already in our minds mechanized it. We're thinking – people talk about final causes when, uh, and, and think that you mean some sort of mechanical force of attraction from the future, right, or something, rather mm-hmm, than mm-hmm. – what what is actually the case is what we're talking about are different ways of explaining a phenomenon that are necessary in order for that phenomenon to have an, a, a complete uh, a rational account of itself. So a final cause is simply, so to speak, the, the limit of the po- possibility that's inherent in this particular phenomenon or this particular uh, substance if it – if it reaches the end that, that is intrinsic to it, right? It's not, it's not about um, – and more and more, you see now people in uh, biology talking about teleonomy and talking more openly about it, realizing that, say, the life sciences realize more and more. And part of this was the failure of the Human Genome Project to, to deliver us a complete code that could explain every aspect of the unfolding of life from you know, protein folding on upward. That, that there's a hierarchical structure of, of life that requires a causal narrative that's not simply, um, you know, from the ground upward. Right, because— So you do see that the sciences yeah. themselves do have the power to uh, overcome their own limitations. Uh, and, and Right, because m- most scientists do— I mean, I didn't mean. I don't mean to paint with too broad a brush. I mean, I'm think when I say I'm thinking of those popularizers like Dawkins and like others right, who right, we, we right. see kind of writing about these things. But many practicing scientists themselves, you know, biologists, and and others, they don't really concern themselves or they don't operate within these frameworks. I mean, they they treat they treat a you know an animal or a plant. They they approach it and say, well, what is this for? You know, how why was this made this way? You know, why and they they approach it in the way that. Uh, you know, even even someone of completely different metaphysical commitments um, might yeah. do. But you, but you know what you were saying about final causes and formal causes. It does it does bring me to another topic I did want to to talk about, which was um, because these are terms from traditional metaphysics. Uh, True uh, is is the benefit of tradi- or let's say how can one benefit from traditional metaphysics? You're someone who has uh, is is very steeped. In the Christian tradition, uh, uh, you know, I've, I myself have benefited greatly from traditional Islamic metaphysics and philosophy. What, what do you think about the prospects for being able to transmit this to people or to be able to have people benefit from it? I, I find myself thinking about this a lot, which is that it, I, I know there's this beautiful tradition 
there's this beautiful discourse, uh, and if you can get to it and you can see people thinking through these questions in a very sophisticated and nuanced, very profound way that can really change the way that you think about the world and open up your horizons. But to get to be able to make it, to be able to make it there, it seems extremely challenging to be able to move. I'm thinking of undergraduates. I'm thinking of students. I'm just thinking of the public in general, even people who are very well educated, very well read. There seems to be a kind of chasm and a growing chasm between them and this tradition, yeah. which can really do a lot for them and can really is is a kind of a treasure. Yeah. Uh, have you ever thought about you know that that gap or that chasm? Yeah, I mean, I, you, you you sort of have to because um, uh, when when you're trying to explain the past uh, and 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 the resources of the tradition, you have to do so in terms first uh, of the present and of and, and and you spend a great deal of your tra- time trying to disabuse your students of casual misunderstandings of the past. Um, I think you know I I, I, I don't know what to recommend to everyone. In my own case, uh, I found that uh, it's never helpful to invoke the tradition simply as authority, that that, that, mm-hmm. one, that what one has to do is constantly, uh, and, and using, if necessary, you know, the tools of philology and other things, uh, history, to mm-hmm. reconstruct the rationality uh, in light of Current questions. I mean, I you know uh, a good example is the one we were just talking about in systems biology. When a very very talented uh, life scientist like Dennis Noble finds that he needs uh, a richer language of teleonomy and a formal causation, that opens a door in which you can say, well, look, um, you know, the the resources of the tradition. Uh, have in many ways been misunderstood by by uh, a sort of modern forgetting of the premises that underlay the language of the tradition. So we, we tend to think, for instance, of all causality in mechanical terms. And mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. if 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 uh, w- when you see how this breaks down, uh, and clearly it does so in in the case of of trying to. Uh, Reconcile purely molecular biology with with fully developed life science because the two the two one does not lead inexorably to the other. There has to be some way of understanding how what is we call and even then call metaphorically information in the proteins the macromolecules of how that is united to the actual organ or to organisms and to gene expression and to epigenetic. Uh, um, uh, forces, you can you can begin to reconstruct and and recommend again as a kind of uh, as, as a system of serious thought that's been misunderstood, but that possesses ways of thinking that can get us past certain impasses created by too great a reliance on a reductive mechanical model, and I and this I think extends also to you know moral philosophy. I mean, they would say Alistair McIntyre is a, is a great omino squeeze here at Notre Dame. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he, he very persuasively uh, through many books has, has argued uh, that a more antique, a more, a more ancient uh, approach to understanding what um, the moral life is, the life of human beings within a rational community of moral ends, 
is uh, in light of the the sort of unanswerable questions generated by by uh, by the more impoverished or meager language of uh, simple you know rights responsibilities the rights of the individual in relation to the powers of the state that modernity has given us as as our sole grammar of ethical obligation or why it answers questions say that uh, that uh, a Kantian categorical imperative by itself is not going to get us to uh, and how it offers a deeper rationality but I think you always have to start from yeah. the problems of the mm. present because I think the only reason we ever look back to the past seriously and are willing to give it a second chance is when we recognize that that, that our, our current situation is one in which we've created uh, impediments to moving forward or impediments to understanding that needn't be there. They're the result of our, our presuppositions, not of the realities with which we're, we're, we're grappling. You, you mentioned McIntyre, and you know he's he he's very well known for the notion of uh, of, of of as it were in 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 living inside of a practice, and the idea that a tradition is is not just a right. set of ideas, or or but that in a sense one inherits a practice, and and I th I think one of the one of the thing one of the fissures that exists in modern life. Um, I think that the, that which in, in a traditional culture, I'm thinking of traditional Islamic culture. I think is the same for many traditional cultures. Um, this notion of of the inheritance of morality, of right and wrong, rather than being instructed about it, you 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 imitated it, you you grew into it, you saw it, um, you you repeated yeah. it, you reenacted it by those who were around you. And I think the that aspect of things has become very largely overtaken. By modern life, it's very hard in, in in modern life to find a kind of a spiritually meaningful practice to be able to imitate. And so, I think a lot of that energy, a lot of those questions, a lot of that uh, that sort of cons that area of concern, I think, has largely gone into the area of art and culture. I think and that's I true. think that's where people find those reenactments and they find the stories and the narratives or, or, and or kind of virtual imitations. Or if not, yes. you get a sort of nostalgia for the absolute that un, that configures itself according to the modern division of of uh, you know natural knowledge super by which I mean that you end up with fundamentalisms, which mm -hmm, are mm -hmm. which are not at all true to the traditions, which don't actually reflect the cultures, the traditions, the spiritual inheritances they pretend to speak for, but uh, but are uh, but are uh, sort of illusions generated by by trying to you know by accepting the modern division of spheres and then trying to occupy. Mm -hmm. Uh, the religious sphere, the separate, the discrete, the 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 unrelated religious sphere as a as a position of absolute value, and uh, you yeah, know, this not, is something I've really, thought about you're not a lot. Really living in a tradition at that point, mm -hmm. you're you're living in the aftermath of tradition, clinging to what you mistake for the right, true expression right. of that tradition. But yeah, no, yeah I, I mean, fundamentalisms right. tend not to. I'm go. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. No, I was going to say. Uh, well, you mentioned about fundamentalism. It 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 seems to be almost a universal rule that fundamentalists tend to be indifferent to matters of art and yeah. to matters of beauty. Yeah. And um, it, that, that it, it, it 
<laughs> That's right, right, exactly. But I, you know, I, I think about I think about this notion of art in in the traditional sense. Of course, the modern notion of the artist it's pretty new creation. I mean, we didn't have it yeah. before Kant and his notion of genius. And well, but I, still, I mean, we have to begin that. from I mean, where the, we the Italian Renaissance. You have figures being called geniuses rather than you know, as being inspired by a genius, you know, mm-hmm. uh, spirit. But yeah, it's... it's. Uh, it, but it, but it, wouldn't it, you say he codified the notion of, 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 as it were, kind of combining that with the aesthetic and with the idea of what it means, what art means? I mean, I, 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 I can see that it, it goes before him, but I'm just thinking of well, his, actually, his theorizing I tend, I, I, of the aesthetic. I tend to think that, um, that if anything, uh, Kant's, uh, Kant's treatment of the aesthetic as... Uh, Simply an expression of the, the the faculty of judgment, not united to a a uh, universal law, but but uh, you know a judgment that has to function as a universal law. If anything, um, is a uh, is a uh, um, how can I put it? A kind of retreat from uh, right. the, the the more grandiose notion of the artist that that comes from the Renaissance and that remains the dominant one, I think, that's, right. resumed, oh, that's, in the, it, yeah. that's resumed in Romanticism in which there's a, there's a kind of prophetic uh, aspect. The true artist is also somebody uh, who, in a sense, is, is uh, pointing towards or inspired by or receiving deliverances from the divine or the, yes. the, the deep sources yes. of reality. And I... I very much, uh, you know, I have a very great uh, love of uh, of sort of romanticism as an idea, romantic rebellion against the rationalization mm-hmm. of the arts. So I I uh, I, I think, um, but it is interesting. I mean, but from I, where I, we stand I, I, I now, this isn't something I would want. Well, you see, here's the thing: I think that uh, the arts, in a sense, really uh, are uh, to some degree, no matter how much. Uh, we we try to to uh, force them into our secularizing uh, view of reality. No matter how many you know good, honest atheist novelists we produce, nonetheless, there is something in the arts which is fanatically obsessed with God. Uh, you, you, even you know even uh, even the, uh, the novelists who say like Philip Roth. Take for example, not not one of my favorites actually, uh, but but uh, you know, to mm-hmm. take an example of a recent American novel, uh, not a believer, and yet the question of God, without it, his there would be nothing of interest in his work. For instance, that, mm-hmm. you know, there is something about uh, the impulse of the arts towards uh, a realm of vision, and it's analogous in a sense to my mind, strangely enough, to pure mathematics. You, it's very hard to meet a mathematician, a really accomplished pure mathematician who's a straightforward materialist. Uh, most of the mathematicians I've known, the really accomplished ones, and I have known a few just for, for odd autobiographical reasons, have a sense mm-hmm. that they're in touch with an eternal realm of realities that, 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 uh, that uh, is more real than... Uh, their quotidian experience, right? And I think um, I'm not someone who despairs at the at the, to my mind, at least this is part of Christian history. Uh, the arts would not have assumed such an important spiritual role for many as as an escape from the sheer mundanity of materialist secularist culture if the churches had not 
failed. You know, I mean, Christendom is a, is a history of failure through success. You know, and uh, um, I. But isn't great, that the limitation on art in the modern period? Isn't that the limitation on art in the modern period? That is to say, an artist can is is in his own domain or her own domain is unlimited, and 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 it, as it were, we, we we give we give the artist a tremendous. Um, uh, w- tremendously wide berth to do and say and act, yeah. but on the con- on the strict condition, it seems to me that they don't claim that they're describing the world in any sense, and also on the on the uh, in the strict uh, with the strict uh, condition that they're not mounting an argument per se. In a sense, it's a kind of a pure expression of love or a pure expression of yeah. uh, a sense of purpose or a pure, I, I, I and, it, and it can, it's never allowed to incorporate explicitly. The idea that this is true, or that this that yeah, this is something that follows in a necessary way, it seems like a, a kind of an inherent limitation within the culture. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, I, I'm not so sure that the culture as a whole, or at least everyone who draws on it, is obedient to that rule. I, I think that mm-hmm. uh, I think that um, uh, there continue to be artists, and there continue to be lovers of the arts who have a sense. That what's going on in their aesthetic experiences is, uh, is some sense a kind of access to a higher, richer, deeper uh, realm of of truth, one that okay, no longer necessarily know how to integrate into the religious grammars of their ancestors, but one that leaves a space open in their experience. Uh, that uh, otherwise, you know, w- would be firmly shut and 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 locked uh, by kind of uh, imperious rationalizing of everything. But I don't think, you see, I I don't think that um, you know theory, you know, the, the academic uh, aesthetic theory, which doesn't even talk in terms of beauty, much less of transcendence anymore, dictates right, how the arts actually function and how people receive them. I think that. Uh, that in, in fact, uh, those of us who live in the academic world have have a fairly distorted notion of how, in general, uh, the, the arts uh, affect those who create and and receive them. The problem I have, I mean, what what I fear is a culture in which the arts themselves uh, wither away. Uh, out of indifference, because uh, the the values that we've we've elevated above them are not, you know. Uh, scientific rationalism or naturalism, but but just uh, you know, economic life. Um, uh, you know the iron rule of capitalism. The iron rule of, you know, that the highest uh, you know, the good is is pursuing material profit, and and that to me is more insidious in its ultimate cultural effects than than a kind of scientific rationalism. The scientific rationalism can subvert itself ultimately. Ultimately, a scientist absolutely committed to finding the truth is going to run up against problems that can't be answered in purely reductive terms. And sooner or later, the paradigm will shift. Uh, A culture Mm. devoted to materialism in in the sense of acquisition and valuing property and valuing uh, uh, social access and uh, above all other things is living in a tautology. That's a system that doesn't subvert itself. It might collapse, 
but its values are self-reinforcing. It, it, it's not seeking the truth because it, the only truth is, is the tautology of wealth. And I think that's what I fear most uh, is that religion, the arts, everything that, uh, that, that, that tells us that we are spiritual beings, not just material events – uh, is crowded out of a culture of, of late capitalist consumerism and, and of the iron law of uh, labor and of the notion that, that profit and loss are the highest uh, uh, highest endeavors of the human spirit. I mean, mm-hmm. here we have, I'm at a university, you know, not the greatest university in the world necessarily, but a very fine one, Notre Dame. But even here, which is, you know, a university based on a... Uh, 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 a theological uh, central curriculum. Nonetheless, more and more you see the curriculum shifting to the STEM disciplines and the STEM disciplines shifting towards the business school and the humanities being reduced to the acquisition of certain skills such as critical thinking or something like that. That's that's the only reason we keep the humanities around so they can teach us skills that we can use usefully when we go out into the world and start to create businesses. And, uh, right, the university yeah. as the uh, factory of experts. Yeah, but managerial experts, uh, experts in production right, right. and uh, experts in right. trade. So, you mean you sounded a little bit more optimistic about the future of philosophy than than, than the, the future of the arts, it seems, uh, well, in, no, in terms I mean, of where I, the culture is going. That, I think that all the humanities, philosophy, the arts, all of them are being crowded out of public consciousness. I mm-hmm. think we are... Uh, for more as a result of our economic system than anything else and of a political system that's built to sustain and fortify and advance that economic system. All of us are being, uh, you know, sort of relentlessly dehumanized. All the things that, uh, well, you talked about living in traditions, living in cultures. More and more, I mean, what's the ideal situation for a properly, fully developed capitalist system of of production? Um, it's simply that all of us should be reduced to punctiliar private instances of sheer acquisitive desire with as few extraneous attachments as possible, things that could distract us like moral beliefs about what it's right to own or not to own or what we should – that we should just become, you know, ideally – so individuated that there exists nothing but, you know, the individual, the state, which is the uh, you know, embracing system of control for keeping everything running, and the market. And I think more and more that's the thing. I mean, I, I think that that all the the humanities and all the humane realities, including uh, you know, religion. Uh, are 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 withering away as a result of that, mm-hmm. and that's and, and well, maybe may, so. I'm, I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic, but I think you know that mm-hmm. the philosophy and the arts and 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 everything that makes us human rather than just machines of production and profit and loss uh, are are the avenues of resistance. I think Muslims, like uh, I think like Christians, uh, I think Christians were a little bit ahead of us in this respect historically. But I mean, we we 
I mean, I think I speak for a lot of believers when I say that, you know, one finds oneself in the political sphere, in the economic and political sphere and social sphere, kind of stuck between the vision that you just described, I think, uh, very well of this, you know, you know, this, you know, idolization of the market and of uh, the individual and of, you know, acquisition and so forth and so on. But then on the other hand, the, the remedy that's most popular, the one that's most ready to hand in the current um, intellectual climate is not one that's based on, let's say, the truth or on faith or on, you know, a return yeah. to God in some fashion. But another kind of uh, it seems to me a kind of an itself based, you know, a Marxist, you know, leftist rejection of religion and of traditional society in its own fashion. And it seems as though if one wants to be able to embrace uh, care for the poor, yeah. uh, uh, having a society that's based on community, you know, not reducing people to these kind of atoms of desire and so forth and so on, it, it, it's as though there's also a kind of an implicit demand that you also move away from religion at the same time. And yeah, so yeah, no, on I the mean, one hand, you have a kind of a lip service to religion, but you yeah. know, going along with capitalism. But on the other hand, you have people who say that religion is for, you know, is the opiate of the masses and it's not something sure. to be taken seriously, but it allows you, you know, it's a, it's, it's a way of life or it's a, it's a philosophical perspective that at the very least allows you to care for the poor. Yeah. It allows you to be decent to other people. And it's a, that's a bit of a, that's, that's a tension well, because you, it, you, you neither notice, one of those is good. You notice that those alternatives ultimately collapse into one another, that they're two poles of a single vision, that, that we are just economic beings at the end of the day. And if you get the economic relations sorted out, then all the other things are secondary and will come as they do. You know, as, as so it's, it's. You mentioned Marx, uh, Marxism. I mean, it's funny. You, Marx, the young Marx, starts out as a kind of romantic rebel, but by the third third volume of Das Kapital, he's the ultimate industrialist. He just believes the whole world should be one large corporation and one large factory, and that labor. And production uh, should be should you know crowd out everything else. I mean, it, it's, the banality of it is is shocking, and yet uh, it's because, of course, all he's ended up being is a mirror inversion of the very thing that, as a young man, he he felt some need to rebel against. And he's what what are the what are the avenues of transcendence that he has not considered? You know, the very you know, for him, art is just material production. Religion is just a mm. protest against bad material conditions that will naturally wither away. And once again, we're left with the state, the market, the individual. Um, but there were other, you know, there are, as I say, I mentioned romanticism in the West. I mean, I, I see there, there really were seeds of a kind of Christian romantic or a kind of maybe uh, uh, slightly heretical, but I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I, I don't mind that so much if the impulses are good. Uh, uh, rejection of this entire logic. Um, there was, say, a Christian socialist tradition that wasn't based on the centrality of the state or its production. Or material production as the as the as the true end of of, of human community, um, and uh, uh, you know figures like John Ruskin or William Morris, and there you would find resonances between uh, Christian and Muslim thought and and their ways of seeing what it is to live in communities that are that are not simply aggregations of individuals. Uh, mm. that, that, you know, s suggests real ways of resisting 
these these dehumanizing patterns in in in, in modern history. But you're right. I mean, the the alternatives were given. For the most part, in modern political discourse, are no alternatives at all. They're simply it's simply a matter of where the preponderance of 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 uh, of control is to be placed in the you know in the state, in the individual corporate entities of the market. But th- we know that these are mutually sustaining realities. One, you mm-hmm. know, e- each requires the other, and that ultimately that's simply a matter of degree. You're still trapped in the same impoverished view of what it is to be human. Hmm. Well, David, it's been greatly enjoyable to speak with you today. Uh, I could speak with you for much longer, but I, I do want to uh, be aware of the time. And uh, I hope we get a chance to uh, to speak again and to meet again. Yeah, well, I hope so too. And thanks for uh, inviting me on. Uh, sorry if uh, occasionally my answers exceeded uh, a decorous length, but you know. No, they were great for me. Thanks again. Well, uh, all the best. 